some really exciting things are coming up for October. Here at Little Crimes on the Prairie, we like to mix things up a little bit. We'll be talking to Phil and Sandy Heyman. They're the authors of Gitchy Girl and their newest book, Duct Tape Killer. We'll be talking about Robert Leroy Anderson and the murders of Larissa Dumansky and Piper Striley. I highly recommend their books, especially since it's spooky season. We love a hot beverage and a good book in the fall. Who doesn't? I mean, yeah, who really doesn't? We'll also be sharing some bonus episodes and exclusive content on Patreon. Help us help others. This month and next month, we're trying to raise funds and volunteers to coordinate another search for Eugene Prinz in the area where he disappeared. And also hope to hear from anyone willing to volunteer their time to help look for someone. We're looking for volunteers and any resources in helping find Eugene. We'd appreciate you reaching out. We'll also be talking about some good old-fashioned Midwest mysteries. We love Halloween, all things paranormal, unexplained, and just plain odd. Remember the time that we were Paul Bunyan and Babe the Blue Ox? That picture's still on the fridge at the office. Aww. It's still up there. It's so cute. What did we win, third place? Something. Yeah, we should have won, though. We were, it was pretty good. I think good. I think it was pretty good. We're working on our new Little Prairie Tales episodes. These are um, listener-submitted stories, and I love hearing stories from people about the experiences they've had, and I can't wait to share them. If you have one, feel free to reach out to us on Facebook, Twitter, email me, any of that. You should be able to find my info. We're not too hard to find. We're kind of all over the place, so I've gotten a few already, and you guys are friggin' amazing. Like, you're damn talented, and keep that shit up. I appreciate that about you. Uh, follow us on Facebook or Twitter, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Check us out on Patreon if you're interested in supporting our projects and exclusive bonus content. We're aiming to try to provide helpful information and resources to the issues that may have impacted our personal lives, as well as the lives of so many others. So we hope to see you over there. Warning. This episode contains graphic language and descriptions of the crime scene discovery, detailed descriptions of the autopsy, toxicology, lab reports, and crime scene photos. Some listeners may find this episode disturbing, and if you do not want to hear these types of things, I encourage you to just read the show notes on our website. Listener discretion is advised. The Upper Midwest is often considered a flyover or pass-through area of the country. Although the United States Census claims that about 68 million people call this area home. The vast openness and low population can bring comfort to some and hell to others. 48% of homicides in the Midwest go unsolved. I'm Christy. I'm Serena. And And this this is Little Crimes Crimes on the Prairie. Since nobody could tell me much about Deb, I figured I would take some time to tell you all about Deb. Debbie was born on February 19th, 1965 in California. Her mom said she was a good baby and a precarious toddler. Deb was always a tomboy. She loved spending time on the farm, helping with the animals. She disliked cleaning in general, but for some reason liked to clean the stove. Her mom gets a kick out of that story. It's very sweet. Debbie really loved to run. She was involved in cheerleading. She was a majorette the marching band and she regularly played football with her stepbrother and his friends. She really wanted to be the first girl to play football in her new small town. She wanted to be a flying Dutchman. What instrument did she play in marching band? She was a majorette. She did the like the baton thing. Oh. I feel like I feel like me and Dad would have got along pretty good. 
Like almost every other 14-year-old in 1979, Debbie really enjoyed going to the pool, watching movies, she liked music, and going roller skating. Deb loved her sisters and was protective of them. She was loved by her family, and she loved them very much. Deb was going through those difficult teenage years that make us all cringe with the memories of the absolutely unbearable awkwardness, the incredibly ridiculous ideas that seemed pretty great at the time, all of the emotions we had no control over, and the teenage angst that caused us to nearly eye-roll into a different dimension. I'm pretty sure Edgerton just wasn't ready for Deb, but I don't think it occurred to her she ought to be bothered by that. She was just too busy trying to find out who she was, and unfortunately that's where it ended for her. Deb's family never got to be her soft spot to land during the struggles that come with those awkward teenage years. They never got to watch her learn to embrace who she discovered inside herself or celebrate her successes. No, we don't get to tell those stories. Not in a way that wasn't tragic or taken away from everyone. I did get to interview Deb's sister, mom, and nephew just this week. So, what did you hear growing up about Deb? Like I said, I didn't hear a whole lot. I think somewhat more recently I asked you a few questions, but other than that, I mean, it, she was kind of just a, a picture on the asshole because, not because they didn't make a point to talk about her, but I also yeah. like, never really asked any questions because I didn't, didn't know, yeah, you didn't I didn't want to anybody. Yeah, yeah. exactly, I, and I didn't want to step on any toes, so I... As a kid. You are a Midwestern Yeah, guy. and as a Aww. kid, I never would have had the guts to ask. And then, like I said, somewhat more recently, I asked my mom. And then, <laughs> now once you kind of came in the picture, Grandma filled me in a little bit. Well, you know, and the thing of it is, is we never talked about it really even. Thank you. Because yeah. we didn't know what to say. You know, it's like, in no the past, nobody has, from what Mom and I knew, it was like, we could only deal with Pipestone County Sheriff, and they weren't going to tell us anything, so we were dead in the water. We had nowhere, we had no idea where to go from there. Yeah. We just thought, if they're not going to help us, who's going to help us? Nobody cares. Right. Nobody so we didn't know what to do. We didn't know where to go. You know, and that, that's one memory that I do have of, you know, the three of us, Deb and Rick and, and I, is that Deb and Rick were both so athletic and I was the chubby one that couldn't do a darn thing you know you were I mean, the lady I was, you I was not lady. athletic I was not thin I was not fit I, you know they could I remember when we still lived in California you'd walk out our front door and you'd turn to your right to take two or three steps down it was a cement you know stoop or whatever and those two would go hauling ass out of that front door and they would flip off of that into our front yard and I'd like get up to it and be like, <laughs> down the steps. I go, you know, it's like that was my life. You know, you living in the so living fun. in the um, the shadows of both of these athletes. That <laughs> well, I was like as wide as I was tall when I was that age. And she's just like, you know, her and Rick were both just trim and fit and muscular and not me. What do you think about the information that we found in the autopsy? You know, like I said, basically knowing that she did not overdose, so she did not do this to herself, which I had an incline all along my whole life, but, you know, I guess 
reading it in there kind of solidified that, that Comfort that's moment. not, that that was not the case. And I know that's what a lot of people want to believe. I think it makes it easier for them to sweep it under the rug. You know, well, she was a rebel. She overdosed. She's tried to commit suicide before, so they say, you know, I don't know that that's true even. You know, I, I don't you have, have any... any do you have any recollection of Dove attempting suicide in the Never. Never. And she and I shared a room. You would think that yeah. I would see something. You know, we were yeah. only 18 months apart. It's not like she was 17 and I was 12 and she was going out and I was staying home, which kind of was. <laughs> because, again, I was the fat little nerd. But, you know... You're so cute. But really, <laughs> you know, but really, I, you know, you would think that I would have noticed something. Yeah, no, you I know, never noticed a thing. Debbie was a runner and always wanted Tammy to run with her, and Tammy would do that. Um, Deb's dream was always to become a, a lab personnel and work at a lab. She thought that'd be so much fun, drawing blood. She talked about that. But and, I never, I, I never ever remember seeing I mean you for sure would have seen signs of you know she and I would change clothes get ready for bed do whatever in the same room you would certainly think I would see some sort of markings on her and Deb didn't wear long sleeves all the time then then she would wear long sleeves she never did that moving forward what what do we want to see I want to see what Dr. Chapman has to say and I think, I, I mean, I want to see what's in that black binder. Mm-hmm. And I think that if Dr. Chapman's re- willing to help us, him and his team, that's going to be the key. Yeah. Whatever's in that black binder that he was holding so close to him. Right. Especially as her family, why can't you see what's in that black binder? Or, or whatever means necessary to get that done is probably our next route. After we die, there are four stages of changes that occur in the body. They are used primarily to determine the time of death in forensic pathology. The four stages are pallor mortis, algor mortis, rigor mortis, and liver mortis. Pallor mortis is described as an increased paleness in the face and other parts of the body, and it's due to the cessation of blood circulation. I had pallor mortis when I almost died. That's great. Really? Mm-hmm. Algor mortis is the cooling of the body. Within seconds of death, the brain cells begin to die and the heart stops pumping blood. Without the brain and the blood distributing heat, the corpse eventually starts to match the outside temperature. Rigor mortis is the stiffening of body when the whole body stiffens. The muscles contract and become rigid and that's what that is. Liver mortis is the final stage of death. Blood collects at certain parts of the body. Depending on the position of the body, these parts would vary. For instance, if the person was flat on their back when they died, the blood would collect in the parts that are touching the ground. Gravity. Yeah. You can imagine. 
Lividity starts with the skin, and that's where the blood has settled and developed a bright red color. After a few hours, the color changes from red to bluish purple. That can take about six to eight hours. The coroner's report was written by Dr. Christensen. It will be a little bit graphic. We're just going to give you like a little trigger warning. Listener's discretion. We're going to keep it as relevant as possible without including anything that's unnecessary. Serena. Do you know the difference between a coroner and a medical examiner? I do not. Well, so a coroner is an elected official. A coroner doesn't have to be a doctor. A coroner can be like a nurse or EMT or in some places just somebody to show up and say, yes, they are dead. Like, they have their functions, they do, you know, they sign the death certificate and whatnot. If there needs to be an autopsy done, they usually contact a medical examiner. And sometimes there will be, like, a state medical examiner. There will be, like, a county. So, like, a coroner would determine, then, if the death is suspicious. And then the medical examiner would perform the autopsy to figure out cause. Right. We'll be discussing the coroner's report and the autopsy report. Two different things conducted by two different people. Well, technically three, but we'll keep it simple here. It starts out and it says, quote, I was called at about 3.30 by Dr. Beckering, who had been trying to get a hold of me previously, but was unable to do so. He had left word with the hospital and I had received word that way. Dr. Beckering reported that there was a body found in a swamp near his office. He also reported that there was some suspicious aspects about this. Number one, the victim was a 14-year-old. Number two, the victim was found face up in the water. Number three, there were bruises on the body. Number four, there was blood coming from the nose. So that was what was reported during the initial phone call from Dr. Beckering to Dr. Christensen. Dr. Christensen arrived in Etcherton. They walked down the hill that leads into the pasture area, and they spoke with the officers and Dr. Beckering, and then they proceeded down to view the body. On examination, the patient had blue jeans on with red tennis shoes. She had a blue denim jacket on that they also said was buttoned all the way to the top as she laid in the water. When we first saw the body, however, the blue denim jacket was open and there was a t-shirt underneath which was gold in color and had a key on the front and the word master. The t-shirt itself was neat and tidy in every respect and was tucked into the jeans very neatly. The jeans had three buttons. The top button was not buttoned. At this time... Dr. Christensen looked for signs of liver mortis. He did not find any in the areas in which he expected. It was more prominent around her shoulders and neck area. That indicates that her body was in a dependent position, that at some point her head was lower than her heart. Okay. Weird, yeah. However, at the time of the autopsy, there was liver mortis present um, on her back, but I am not 100% sure that that wouldn't have happened since it was an extended period of time. Mm-hmm. That, you know, from the time that Dr. Christensen arrived until her autopsy began. So, uh, you know, I'm not an expert in, in that area, so we'll get some clarification on that, I'm sure. Deborah laid in a supine position on her back. The patient's entire body was in rigor mortis at the time of the exam. Her knees had a slight flexion to them. Her left hand was by her side 
and slightly flexed with her hand on her abdomen. Her right hand was slightly abducted with the elbow inflection. Flexion. Inflection. Her right hand was slightly abducted with the elbow inflection <laughs> and the hand extending up in the air. She lay in a supine position. So she was on her back. Her right hand was was sort of up in the air. I did see some photos. It was almost it wasn't open. It was it wasn't like a full fist. It was sort of her you know, fingers were kind curled. of cur- curled inward, yeah. Sort of like Steve described in the first part, mm-hmm. you know, where your fingers are going to curl. In the coroner's report, it mentions that Deb was grounded and I've confirmed that with her mom. She wasn't necessarily grounded for doing something wrong. It was her sister's birthday and she wasn't she didn't want to join them in celebrating her sister's birthday at the pool. So if she wasn't going to be nice and come with to the pool, you know, to celebrate her little sister's birthday, um, she wasn't going to go anywhere. So she wasn't like grounded, grounded, but it was just like, you weren't, you're not going somewhere else. If you're That's not, not with us. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I mean, it's she, yeah, she was 14. She had a, a little bit of an attitude about it. And so she wasn't supposed to go anywhere. You know, we, we know that she did go somewhere. Yeah. Where she went, we do not know. After her mom and her sisters left for the pool, Deborah left the house without permission. Her stepdad attempted to see where she went, could not see where she went. So didn't he drive? He went, he drove around the block or around Edgerton's not a big town. So they did later when, when Deb's mom and sisters returned from the pool, they did go out looking for her then. Okay. At that point though, it wasn't unusual. Well, no, it was unusual. I know in here, it also says that this had happened before. I've asked Deb's mom about that. She said that she can't really remember that ever happening before. So she doesn't know who says that Mm -hmm. she was never interviewed formally by the police at least that's what they said so whether or not they spoke with her informally or not i i assume they yeah we'll just yeah (laughs) so anyway he checked the garage deb's bike was still there he went outside he looked down the street did not see her checked with the neighbors she was not there either so he called the pool to inform his wife that Deb took off. When she returned, they went and looked for her. You know, they drove around. Eventually, they did notify law enforcement. From my understanding, it was mostly because her just blatant disrespect for the rules. I don't know. I don't feel like there was a huge sense of urgency initially when they contacted law enforcement. It was more, you know, she just needs to come home because, you know, this sort of behavior isn't going to be tolerated. Like, we're not yeah, we're not playing with you. Right. So, you know, my mom would have not tolerated any of that bullshit. Well, I mean, I guess she did. <laughs> I don't know. It, I mean, yeah, I guess my mom did call the cops on me when I took off a few times. I never had the cops called on me. Oh. But I also didn't have friends, so yeah. <laughs> you well, never had to worry yeah. about me leaving. I was always I... at home notorious for not coming home when I was supposed to so normally she wouldn't but occasionally she would just get sick of my crap and Mm -hmm. you know gotta learn eventually yeah some of us, I guess. After 7 p.m., Deb was removed and brought to Walt's funeral home. So it's interesting to note that after Deb was taken to the funeral home, Dr. Christensen and some other people, I, I don't, I'm not 100% sure who witnessed this, Dr. Christensen crossed the shallow swamp to the other side, sort of the east side of that little of that little channel there. I'll have a map up on the blog here when I get everything updated. You'll be able to kind of see what we're talking about. We're going to take a short break. 
I'm going to introduce you to a few podcasts that I've really been enjoying lately. We're not sponsored by anybody, but we could always change that. Feel free to contact us if you're interested in sponsoring our show and reaching a widespread, diverse audience. Are you looking for a new adventure? Did you ever want to visit the city where all your nightmares reside? Well, you're in luck. Join us, your tour guides, Christine and Jen, to visit Nopeville, where you will be personally escorted on an all-inclusive trip through the city and see all possibilities of terror and fright. You'll see all sorts of things on your tours, including, but definitely not limited to, the paranormal, true crime, the supernatural, and more. If you're into all that and enjoy a little dark humor, book your tour today and nope right along with us. Check us out on our website at nopevillepodcast.com to see where you can listen to Nopeville today. Do you often find that you need a distraction from everyday life? Do you like true crime, conspiracy theories, paranormal stories, and other weird, dark tales? Well, tune in and turn up Weird Distractions Podcast, where we, your hosts, Christy and Alex, bring you a weird distraction to help you get through the work week. Every Sunday morning, you can find our show on Apple Podcasts, Anchor, Spotify, Good Pods, and more. So, grab a snack, get comfy, and make sure to lock those doors. Need a distraction? We got you. Those are just a few that I'm really enjoying lately. Also, if you are not listening to Dakota Spotlight podcast, I highly recommend it. James Wolner does an amazing job telling a story that seems awfully familiar, kind of like what happened with Deb's story and what propelled me to do this. It's pretty interesting to know that I have a kindred spirit just north across the prairie. Hope you guys enjoy his work as much as I do. Thanks a lot, James. Now, back to our story. So he walked across and there was an area over there just south of a large tree on the east bank. The grass was matted down and bent in the direction going south. And the path was approximately a foot and a half wide and about 10 feet long. There was a large area of approximately four foot to five foot, which had the grass all matted down and headed west across the swamp. Then there was a path from two to three feet wide headed across the swamp to the area where Deb's body was found. So people were, they're walking paths? What he's talking about is like people frequently walked on those or? In my conversation, it was my understanding that it she may have been drugged there from that area on the east side. Oh, okay. The three marks on her neck that we spoke about in part one are also mentioned here. What I saw in the picture, they looked more almost like punctures. It's hard to say exactly what may have caused that. You suppose they could have been made by, like, some sticks? Yeah. Which would kind of go along with that matted. Yeah. It's, it's unclear when those injuries happened. May have occurred after death as her body was moved. Something of that nature. It's not for me to determine where those came from. They weren't bleeding when she was found, but they had started bleeding um, at some point. What if she was drugged there by, like, an animal? No, by an animal. Like a mountain lion. No. Or a coyote. A coyote can't drink it. <laughs> well, Christ. big coyote. A bear. <laughs> oh, my God. She's ridiculous. 
So the report indicates that she may have been moved after death, or at least there was something. She probably didn't die in that spot. Right, right. So they tried to contact a medical examiner in Minnesota. For some reason, that did not work out, and they did in fact, transport her to Sioux Falls to what was then Sioux Valley Hospital. And there was an autopsy performed by Dr. Frank Foss, and he was a pathology resident, and Dr. Lang was a staff pathologist with that firm. It looks like she was taken to Sioux Falls at about 10.15. So that's seven and a half hours after she was found, right? She was found at 2... Yeah, something like that. 2.45? Yeah, seven and a half hours. That's so long, I, you know, but I don't know that. It seems like a long time just to have a yeah. body. Like, Yeah. So on August 20th, Dr. Christensen also got to listen to a bunch of rumors and stuff regarding Deb's death, and that was back in 79. I bet they were a lot better back then. He was unable to verify um, same doc, same. Someone even said that she had attempted suicide previous to this and reportedly tried to cut her wrists at one time. In this autopsy, there's no evidence of that. There's no evidence of no... No scarring. No scarring noted here. Also, her family, they don't recall ever having an incident like that. Yeah. They were pretty sure that they would remember something like that. They were pretty positive that there had been none of that. It kind of goes to show how just because we have social media now that people still start rumors for no reason. People still make up stories, make up lies. We don't really know what happened to Deb, but we know it wasn't that. And even back then, it was easy to hear those rumors if you really wanted to. And it's just, it's the same way today. Things haven't gotten worse. It's just more public. And even now, people still have their fair share of rumors about this specific case, too. For sure. People who weren't there, people who didn't even know the family. Yeah, definitely some people who who didn't actually witness anything, but certainly think they know what happened. Which is unfortunate, because you'd think that if someone knew what happened, had knowledge of it, or anything like that, this case wouldn't still be a mystery. We wouldn't be sitting here discussing what happened to Deb. Her family wouldn't have gone all these years with no... I think somebody out there knows. Oh, somebody out there for sure knows. I hope that they're still alive today to come forward and give their information, but perhaps they're not. Yeah. So there was some prescription medication to prescription medications found in Deb's system, and that was what are reported to be therapeutic levels of phenobarbital and metobramate. When I looked both of them up, phenobarbital can be used for seizures. It also has qualities of a sedative. Metobramate, from my understanding, was for anxiety, so it was not in an overdose range at all. Uh, The final report written by Dr. Christensen was dated one 8, 1980 says the cause of death is consistent with asphyxiation. There's a couple notes here. The first one is that the first note says that Deborah had phenobarbital and meprobamate in her blood in therapeutic or lower range, but not in overdose range. Number two says the possibility of other street drugs cannot be totally ruled out. Three, rigor mortis of the victim's right arm and both legs when found along with other physical evidence at the scene indicate that she was moved at least several hours after the time of death. Four, the marks which were on her neck cannot be identified but did happen at the time of death or any time after death but did not happen significantly before death. And Dr. Christensen signed it and that was it for him. Also, the death certificate was dated the same day. January 8th. 
1980. To explain the delay, to clarify what I believe explains the delay in signing the death certificate was Dr. Christensen just simply waited for the autopsy report, the toxicology results, any further evidence from law enforcement to indicate a manner of death. Manner of death was undetermined. Cause of death was consistent with asphyxia. I am unsure if it's positional asphyxia or otherwise. We discussed on Deb's last episode with Brocop. He brought that up too and I think he he called it before we even had the final report. It might be a little bit easier to to see that coming when you see consistent with asphyxia and an undetermined manner. She was definitely in a some kind of position, something happened, and she was moved to that location. Maybe to be found easier yeah, for various I, reasons. Yeah, it, it almost seems that way. It I mean, not a really good spot to try to hide her, I guess. But some- if she had went missing... In between 7 and 8 o'clock the night before, in August, it would have been quite light out still. I would think that someone would have noticed her that night if she were there. You would think so. I mean, we can't say that for sure, but the sun's still out in August. Yeah, it is. That late. And in the autopsy report, they estimate time of death at about 2 a.m. Confirms Dr. Christensen when he says that the body was moved. So that, I don't know. I feel like that's really late. Like, where was she that whole time? Because in the original police report, they checked out a house where a bunch of kids hung out and she wasn't there. I don't know that they went in and looked. I, I don't know what that was. That's why this that was is a mystery. The, the farm southeast of Edgerton. They went and checked because some young kids lived there is literally what that report says. And I don't, it's kind of vague, you know what yeah. I mean? Like, they could have just shined their flashlights in and called it a night. They could Yeah, yeah. Or I mean, even just said, hey, is Deb here? And everyone's like, no. And we don't know who they spoke to when they were there. Right. So if you were there, come yeah. forward. <laughs> we would love to talk to you. No kidding. Whoever you are. What the hell? At what point do you just do the right thing? I, how do you how do you just carry on? Anyway, Deb was not sexually assaulted. That is probably a small comfort. The hyoid bone was intact. The what? The hyoid bone. A lot of times if the hyoid bone is broken, it indicates strangulation. Oh, okay. A result here of pulmonary congestion and edema. This describes bilateral external abrasion and contusions of the neck and face superficial bilateral pulmonary congestion and edema mild external abrasion and contusion of face and neck bilateral periorbital congestion periorbital edema is a term for swelling around the eyes it does say in here that she was found with a white screw top pill bottle that was um in her sock on her left leg and it had a handkerchief in it with three pills that were identified as two 25 milligram tablets of elevo which is an antidepressant and one 30 milligram tablet of phenobarbital and the phenobarbital was found in her system the elevil was not when i looked up elevil the biological name of it or whatever the long form name was not mepopramate for a 14-year-old, it seems weird that she would have a pills in her sock. Just a couple of pills. Right. Who is a pharmacist back then? Was there only one? That's what I want to know. I mean, I'd like to be able to confirm if, if those medications were hers. I haven't been able to confirm that yet. It doesn't say on here if there was no. a name on that pill bottle. So if there was, it was left out. Or it could have just been a completely blank, empty pill bottle. A pink frothy foam is found to be exuding from the mouth. Yeah, she did have foam in her mouth. 
Three fairly well-defined purple-blue ecchymosis on the anterior portion of the neck. One by one centimeter, one by 0.7 centimeter, 0.8 by 0.5 centimeter. They're all different. Well, they're the same size, basically. Also present are two red-brown apparent superficial abrasions having ill-defined margins. Abrasions shoulders and chest. I think a lot of that was attributed to the moving of her body. The abdomen is flat with a single needle mark being present in the midline three centimeters below the lower sternal border. It is otherwise normal. Is that like a birthmark? No, I'm guessing that that's where Dr. Christensen actually took fluid from her heart for the testing for toxicology purposes. So the lower half of her body is... Symmetrical, no evidence of injury. Upper extremities are normal except for the presence of a single 5 millimeter superficial laceration. Located on her right index finger, just a scrape. Cut her finger. Superficial is a small amount of apparent brown dirt is present beneath the fingernails bilaterally, which all that totally makes sense being where she was found. Right. Also, no other drugs were present in her system, just those prescription drugs. Although they didn't test for marijuana that I see. It's not really that that big of a deal. Oh, and it does say right here that blood samples via intracardiac puncture were performed locally um, in Pipestone. So that that's where that needle mark come from. Um, there was no alcohol in her system. Yeah, so it doesn't sound like she was highly intoxicated on anything. She had a little bit of um, drugs in her system, but therapeutic levels. The evidence doesn't point to an overdose of any kind. There's no evidence to suggest that she had attempted suicide previous as far as the examination of her body. The evidence is just as mysterious and it's strange. She's a 14 year old girl. Why was this not being investigated more heavily? Right. So I accompanied Deb's sister to the sheriff's office in Pipestone. Deb's sister had made an appointment with Deputy Mike Heyman to look at the case file. She invited me to come along. I take along. I wasn't expecting to go in, but he invited me in and we sat and talked for like two hours and we never did get to see the case file. His reasoning for it is it's an open investigation. It's inactive. That's the first time anyone's ever confirmed the status of the case to me. Even the BCA was like, there is no case. Yeah. But there is a case. Yeah. And it's open? It's open and inactive. So it was a bit frustrating that even with the lack of activity for all these years, he still wasn't willing to allow the family. It's been 41 years. I think they can Well, yeah, I'm not sure what they're protecting because it's certainly not. And if it's inactive, you'd think what you'd want to do is get people to see it and put their input in it because. I mean, you would think. There's been no, nothing. They don't like that. They don't, honestly, and, and I'm not saying that it's not true but you know we're armchair detectives they just they don't put any credibility or any sort of reliability into resources and a different perspective than they may have and that's fine i guess i didn't really expect to be a detective or anything because i'm not but to get what you went there for would have been nice i you know i don't know why he made it sound like she was going to get to see the case file like i don't know why he wasted all of our time you know and as a Matter of fact, yeah, we we could have just saved the time and money and both stayed home. It was not anything that we didn't already know that we learned from him. 
I don't know. It was just disappointing. I felt really angry for the family at that point, but I guess it is what it is. I don't know why they're so protective over a case that they're not even looking at. Anything that's documented on that case since June is directly because of our work. I'm not sure if there has been anything. I doubt it, you know, other than the phone call to request the information from the sheriff and then probably our conversation with Deputy Heyman. Did he record that? I don't know. Probably. Yeah, it's uh, just kind of weird that, you know, they're obviously not doing anything about it, but they're not trying to help either. Like, you guys don't have to do anything. Just hand over the information. At what point does the family get to say, we want someone else to look at it? I mean, how long do they have to wait to, you know, have a second opinion? Because honestly, I was able to contact Dr. Brendan Chapman from Murdoch University over in Australia. He... And his team of forensic smarty pantses run the cold case review. They do incredible work building databases and just generally reviewing cold cases like that's what they do. He's the lead lecturer in forensic science over there. And he's just, he's a great guy. I reached out to him and he responded right away. He's like, yeah, send me what you have. And fortunately, I had just received the coroner's report. So I sent that over. I mean, I got pretty lucky in and being able to get a response from him and him and his team are are looking at the information that I gave them and they did send a letter to the Pipestone County Sheriff's Office requesting to see the case file as well. Deputy Heyman said that he would have to discuss it with the county prosecutor, go from there, but I I don't know why they wouldn't want someone to take a look at it. Mm -hmm. I mean, I guess that would be a good way to tell if they're really interested in moving this case forward or just letting that black binder collect dust some more. I don't know why. It's just proving how we had already discussed that there's been, even if Deb's death was an accident, there's still a lot of unanswered questions and no one's really been trying to do anything about it. And we already discussed that, how no one did her justice in 1979 and no one's really doing her justice right now either. Um, Not the people that are the most helpful to us, at least. Yeah, it's, yeah, I was just so mad and it was infuriating. So while we did not get to see the case file, we did, however, get to see the crime scene photos, which we could have just done that in private. I have copies of photos from the crime scene, and it seemed like such a strange thing to offer in lieu of real information. Documents. I don't know. I don't know that it's that weird. It's certainly not been my experience in requesting files from the police to actually like come in and sit down and talk with them. Most of the time, any case files that I have requested are open cases. Not all of them, but but some. And, you know, you generally get the same response. We can't really talk about it. It's an open case. Mm-hmm. And I got none of that. I got none of the responses I expected with this case. I guess it, it is what it is. 41 years later, and we still don't know why. We fully intend to find out. Whoever you are, we'll find you. We're coming for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, hopefully this forensic thing goes somewhere. Yeah, it'd be interesting to get the input from people who aren't here. He actually emailed me and said that he met with his team and they were going to take a couple days to look over. We'll see where all that goes. We'll keep you guys updated. And until next time, thanks for your support. Don't forget to subscribe. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And peace out, Brussels Sprouts. This has been brought to you by Crooked Sea Ranch Productions. Music courtesy of Mark Wallach. 
A big shout out to everyone who participated in this episode and the telling of Deb's story. 